you have a Bible this morning and you'll read along with us, uh, we're going to take a reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 6. The book of Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to read in two different places this morning from this chapter, and so bear with us as we try to read today. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 6. It says, take heed that you do not your alms, just means giving, before men, to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand Know what thy right hand doeth. Thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets, they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward." But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Then we're going to have you jump down to verse 16 and read to verse 18. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fasteth, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And that will conclude our reading this morning. Please forgive me for any mistakes that I might have made in the reading of God's Word today. The title of our message this morning is Motives of the Hidden Man. Motives of the Hidden Man. I suppose that um, each week I come and and preach and try to search out what the Lord would have me to, to say to you all. And... Periodically, I'm not going to say rarely, but it's not super common, I don't guess. There are times when a scripture that you read and you, you understand on a surface level really hits you a lot deeper than what normally things do. And I suppose this week, um, I began to read on Monday and study this text, and it's really hit home at a deeper level than I anticipated or has in a long time, and so I pray that God will help me to articulate the things that He's revealed to me in my heart and how it's impacted me. The context of this sermon that Jesus is preaching, most people know it's the Sermon on the Mount. And at a cursory reading of it, 
a lot of principles that you and I are familiar with and have been ingrained into Christian jargon and thought process. Um, But the deeper that I study the Sermon on the Mount, the more that I find it to be words that are the most utterly profounded words that have ever been spoken. I can sit and dwell on just one phrase of six or seven words and the deeper I consider it, the more that it just plums to the depth of my heart. And I want to give you a little bit, hopefully, of what Jesus is doing on this sermon before that we lead up to the text that we read to you today. Jesus is amongst a multitude, and he goes up to a mountain, and he calls his Christian lingo word here, disciples, students. I don't know if this is talking about his followers, specifically those who have been born again, that were following him, or whether it's just generally speaking, and I've heard many men go both ways. Whether it was just people who were curious, as in John chapter 6, there were many of his disciples that fell away. So I don't know if it was people who were just curious, students, that could denote there's something about this man and his teaching that is noteworthy that I need to follow. But regardless, he begins to teach us about a Christ follower, a person that wants to be godly. A person that has set out with the intent to follow the Lord and to know more of Him. And so we first come to this first portion of the text that most people are familiar with called the Beatitudes. And he outlines what a blessed man is. And it gives things that would seem the opposite to what the world would deem blessed. Someone who is poor in spirit. In other words, humble. Someone who mourns. Someone who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And he goes down and he gives seven different groups of people. And what he's getting at is the character of a Christ follower. What internally we ought to exhibit and develop in our character. He then steps into the next portion and he begins to tell us what He gives two analogies. He compares the people of God to salt and then also to light. And so he tells us by that what the function of God's people is when we're living in the world and we're exhibiting those qualities that he demonstrated in those previous verses, what our function is. And then he also gets into what our effect will be. That will be like a city that's set upon a hill and a light that cannot be hid that all people will see. And what he is obviously leading us towards is that when we embody the character of the Beatitudes or strive to and we live according to that, that it manifests through our good works to the world. That a person who is meek and humble, and hungers and thirsts for righteousness, and mourns, and is persecuted for righteousness' sake. All of these qualities, when we exhibit those things, we show the world the righteousness of Christ and the difference between people who are Christ followers and people who are not. And then he gets into, in the third section, verses 16 through 20, he begins to discuss what righteousness 
what it is that we need to strive for and, and the standard. He sets a standard and he basically says in verse 20 of chapter 5, Accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you'll have no part in the kingdom of God. Now to this time and culture, that's a mighty standard to set. Because these Pharisees and Sadducees were looked out from the lens of the Levitical law as the most righteous people. And so Jesus is calling these followers and saying, You've got to exceed that. And so as a follower listening to him, your mind would probably immediately go to, well, I don't pray as much as they do, and I don't execute the requirements of the Levitical law like they do, and I don't give as much as they do, and I don't do all of these things because I see their righteousness. And I know I'm not like that, and yet if I'm going to be a Christ follower, I've got to exceed that. What a high standard to set. But then Jesus pivots like he so often does, and he reimagines in the heart and minds of his followers that where their minds immediately ran was the wrong place. That what they have defined as righteous is not necessarily righteous at all. And so he spends the rest of what we've labeled chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, and he takes six different things that the Pharisees, that these religious people, and even that these Christ followers would have defined as righteousness. Now, I would say people very often do that today. If you ask someone who is not particularly religious about what's going to happen when they die, usually when you get to the bedrock principle that they articulate, it goes something like this. I hope I've been a good enough person because I haven't done these lists of really heinous sins that God will forgive me and let me into heaven because I haven't done these little things. Or excuse me, because I haven't done these big things. And so they might say something, and you've probably seen online these different videos where Christian men will go and interview people and they'll ask them about those questions and they'll say, well, I haven't murdered and I haven't stolen. And 2,000 years ago, that's the same attitude. Seems like it's deep in human nature that we just suspect if I've not broken these big parts of the law, I'm going to be okay. But Jesus begins to redefine for us what righteousness really is. And it's past Men's standards and men's perception. I'm really focused on that last part. It's beyond what people perceive. And so he says, you've heard it said in the past, thou shalt not murder. He later says, just a few verses later, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt honor the oath that you put forward. Thou shalt write a bill of divorcement or go through the proper legal process in order to get a divorce according to the standards of the time. And he lists six different things that either the law says in the Old Testament or people had added to the law that the Pharisees and Sadducees would pronounce themselves righteous because they did those things. It was in essence a checklist. And if I could check it off, or if you could check it off for me, based upon your perception, that I could be defined as a righteous person. And then Jesus does what he so often does, and that is, he digs deeper. 
got to think of this week about the idea of a deep person. You ever heard somebody say, you know, that guy's deep, or that woman, she's a deep thinker. Or you can also hear somebody say, that person's very shallow. You know, the essence of something being shallow, if you go to a pool, and I remember when I was a kid, we used to do that. We'd have, uh, my aunt and uncle would, uh, they had a pool and they would go and they would throw pennies into the, the shallow end of the pool and we'd get goggles on and we'd jump in and we'd look. But usually what we would do before we did is it was so shallow, we could stand up on the side and look down and you could spot each penny. Because it was so shallow, it was easily perceivable. But if you were to do that very same thing in the ocean and you had not something that was really small, but if you had the biggest animal on planet Earth, the blue whale, there are probably many people who have had them directly underneath them. But it was at such a depth, you could never see it. And so what Jesus does here is he strips righteousness and godliness from its shallowness that people perceive, and he digs to the depth of it. And he says, true righteousness is more than a checklist. And so he goes to murdering. And he says, listen, from the perspective of God, who sees to the depth of a person, what he knows is this. You may never have murdered a person, but in your heart have harnessed hatred towards that person and vitriol in your spirit towards that person and perhaps even wished harm in your mind or felt vindicated when they suffered and thought to yourself, yeah, they deserve that. And Jesus teaches us here, if you've done that, that is unrighteousness. That is sin just as a man would murder somebody. He goes to committing adultery. And he says, if a man looks upon a woman and he lusts after her in his heart, that he's committed adultery already. So he's digging to the depths of things, to the places that are not seen. I don't know about you, but whenever I look at those things, that's sobering. Because what it does is it tears down my ability to feel good about myself. To look at you or to look at somebody else and then to consider my own righteous deeds and I can't simply check the mark and say I'm okay. Because what the Bible teaches me is that the motive is what matters. Not just the action. And so when you trace back the action to the motive, what I recognize about myself and about human nature is this, that very often when we do things and when we say things and when we act certain ways, we're doing them unaware of what our real motive is. That we just act and we have a motive, but we're not thoughtful and cognizant that our motive might not be as holy and as righteous as what our actions are perceived to be. If you're lost this morning, you may think, you know, all this thing about lost and going to hell and, man, that's an awful bad punishment. And a lot of times people think that. They think, you know, I'm not that bad. But all I ought to get you to consider this morning is 
Maybe don't consider your actions, but consider the motives and the intents of your heart. Because as soon as I begin to think loftily of myself, and then I concern myself with my motives or my thoughts, why I do things, what I recognize is this, and I hope you know this, you can do the right thing out of the wrong motive and it be sin. Did you realize coming to church can be sinful? Sinful. Did you realize giving in the offering can be sinful? Praying can be sinful. Any act that you think inherently is righteous apart from motive is not the case. What God is concerned about is much less the final product, but rather the character, disposition, and quality of the heart that is performing the deed. Because ultimately, God doesn't need the action. God doesn't, he he may desire it, but what God desires more than that is your heart in doing the action be one set towards loving God and loving your neighbor. So he takes out from under these people that, and then he gets into chapter six, and he really gives us a litmus test to consider the motives of our heart. And that litmus test is doing things in secret. One of the unique things about our time is that everything has the opportunity to be displayed publicly. I've often wondered what it was like to sit in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and listen the day after that horrible battle when our president got up and perhaps the most eloquent political speech that's ever been given, what it was like. And I wish so badly it had been recorded. That I could hear and see the scene, but you can't. And yet I think that then there was less temptation to do things to be seen because of the absence or the inability to record that and continuously display it to the world. Or in other words, before the modern technology, I believe it was less, Satan had less control on people to make them consider, here's why you need to do this. Here's the benefits you can get. Because ultimately, if I'm having a conversation or I'm giving a speech to a small group, it stops there. Now, what can creep into the hearts and minds of all of us is if I do this, if I record this, if I take a picture of this, if somebody sees it and wants to write about it, they can publish it for all people to see. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, gives us the litmus test to help us gauge where our heart is at by asking you this question, in all of your righteous actions, are you willing to do them in secret? Or at its core, do you want to be seen? He starts, he talks about giving money. You know, I, I, I have seen these, these videos before where these guys will go up and give a, a poor guy like $1,000, a homeless man, and they'll record it the whole time. 
and they'll be acting very sanctimonious right, about how good they're doing it. And I think, how sinful, you know? Because here's the malevolent part of it all. Did you know that by recording that video and getting views, they get paid? Isn't that the irony of it? I'm going to give you $1,000 and record it. I'm going to put off a perception like I'm a good, righteous person, be thought well of, but all the time what I know is that I have found a market to monetize publishing my righteousness. Whoa. You know when people do that, God has no use for that. There is nothing about that that is righteous. See, the hidden man is that real part of you. Unconcerned with what people say, unconcerned with what people think, unconcerned at who watches you say or do, that's the hidden man. And that's the part that this sermon is directed to in the people of God. It's developing in that hidden person that no one, including those closest to you, ever see. God is interested in that man or in that woman and in cultivating a resemblance to Jesus Christ in that person. That's what he wants to do. And a way that he can help us to make sure that our focus is not carnal and set upon what people think and perception, which is so predominant today. Because even in a free market economy, what we're trying to do is do a good enough job that our boss might notice that we might get a raise, that we might be promoted, that we might be awarded. There are so many things in our culture that even though they can be good and helpful, might also simultaneously be destructive to the hidden spiritual man. He gives talks about giving. And here's how far Jesus goes in teaching us that. And he's obviously using a metaphor. He says, when you give, don't be like other people who, as the example I just gave, go record themselves. Go make sure their name is broadcast so that people know. But rather what I want you to do is be so secretive about it that your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand is doing. Why? Because then you can ensure the motive of your heart is to honor God and love your fellow man, not be seen by men. There is, I don't, I don't know what it is, and I've thought about it a long time. Why is it that we want one another's glory? Because in one breath, I can think to myself, Danny's a bad person. And in the next breath, Desire his glory. I want his good words. I want his praise. And what is it about our constitution that we're constantly tempted to think about the praise and admiration of one another at the expense of the Lord? Your opinions change. Your, your opinion is based upon a perception that is not even partially seen. I mean, do you realize in one another the infinitesimal amount of what we see of one another? That is unless everything that's inside of a person, they're so shallow, they want it to be seen. And there are some people that way. Everything about them, they want to be seen. Here, Jesus is teaching us the depth of a Christ follower involves doing things secretly to glorify our Father. 
He goes to prayer. You know, I, I read this week a, a comment that said, when, it's, when the only time we pray is in public, it's because we desire the glory of men. But if we pray a lot in secret, then you know you're striving for the glory of God. Man, that hit home. About really what is the driving, because what Jesus says here is there's a place that we go. And obviously he's using this loosely. He's talking about a principle, not necessarily a verbatim thing here. He's saying, when you pray, don't do as other people do. Because prayer is not a horizontal act. Prayer is solely, unlike giving, prayer is solely a vertical thing. All it deals with is two people, you and God. And so he says, when you pray, and I'll go farther to say this, we have times where we publicly pray, and there is nothing sinful or bad about that. It's necessary, and I have found myself very often highly encouraged by people's prayers. But here are the times when people's public prayers are most beneficial. It's when they begin to reveal the hidden man. It's when all the the things that are generally said that would be said in a speech, that would be said in a sermon, that would be said for people to tickle people's ears and to be uh, fondly remembered by people. When all that is gone and what is left is the unconventional, the, the stripped down version of that man or that woman when they have lost connection with down here and you can tell they're solely and intensely focused on heaven and I'm not thinking about their succession of speech and how fluid it is and I'm not thinking about whether they're remembering certain people in prayer, checking the things off the check mark, but it is when the agonizing of their soul or the rejoicing of their heart is being spilled over from that perception and it's coming out and that hidden man is being revealed and I just happen to be in the presence of that person and can hear it and see it there is great value both to God like it always is when those prayers come out but there can also be great value to our fellow man because what it does is it helps us to recognize have I become too stiff have I become too horizontal thinking in my prayers or am I like that person only thinking vertically about who I'm talking to Jesus here strips it all down and he says Go, and go somewhere private. Make sure nobody's around. So there's not even the possibility that your prayers could be infected with the thought, what if this person hears me? I want to make sure they, they do know that I'm praying so that I get righteousness points. I don't know what you get for that, right? Attention, praise, thought well of. He says when you pray, do it, do it by yourself. You know, I, I, I said this along, I think in December, whenever I pray, I have to put my fingers over my ears. Whenever we're all praying in public, I can't. One of the big reasons is not because I can't concentrate because you're praying. It's because I begin to think that you're here. And it alters what comes out. But if I can completely block you out, and ignore that you're not here at all, 
then there are times which I can really talk to the Lord. Jesus teaches us a litmus test to know is what are you doing in secret? What does the hidden man look like? What does the hidden woman look like? And he finally gets to the last place, another religious act that I don't think is abolished whatsoever. It's good, healthy practice. Fasting. Fasting. When your eyes and affections are set so deeply upon something that your dependence upon what is natural is eliminated because it becomes an obstacle and an interruption into pursuing the spiritual. You know, comes to my mind, I want to back up for just a minute about prayer. I think of Daniel when I think of this type of prayer that Jesus is talking about. I think uh, many people recognize that in our country that we're progressively growing less religious and there's becoming more and more pressure upon religious institutions to conform to political correctness. And at some point, I believe very strongly, probably sooner than later, it's going to come to a head. There's going to be compelling that is going to be involved in our activities. That, that's not without precedent, right? All through the Bible we find that, especially during the life of Daniel. Now let me ask you this. Let's say tomorrow a law was passed, the president signed it, let's say the Supreme Court has already heard the case, and it has been ruled that just like Daniel, you cannot pray to the Christian God. Or let's say something that would seem a little more regular. You can't come to church. You're not allowed to come. Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, you're not allowed to come. You know what I think would happen? Our church would be full. That's my opinion. Do you know why I think that? Because the American spirit has developed into this, you can't tell me what to do. You can't stop me from this. And so a lot of people would say, you know what? Since they're telling me I can't, I'm going to come into the house of God and I'm going to worship who I want. And I'll tell you this morning, I believe that's sin. Because the motive of the heart is what? Is it righteous? Is it striving after righteousness and godliness secretly? No. It's to be seen. It's to make a public statement. Daniel, what the, the most superb thing about the story of Daniel is not that after they passed the law, he continued opening his windows and doors three times, day and night, and in the middle of the day to pray. The most phenomenal thing about it is before they passed the law, he did it. That's the great thing about it, is that the character of Daniel was rooted in the Beatitudes. He was a man of God. Regardless of what anybody did, regardless of the perception, the standards, the legal situation that man could set up, Daniel's mind and heart was Godward. And so what he had originally done to, in order to honor God, he just continued to do despite the limitations man was putting on him. If similar people during this time went out and started opening their doors and windows, I can't imagine God being as honored by that as what he was when Daniel set his eyes towards Jerusalem, opened his windows, and just as times before, continuing to worship the Lord. You see, God sees the, the intents of our hearts. Fasting, I'm not going to get into it. I'm going to begin to close. Fasting is another one. 
these people would walk around and they'd lament about how hungry they were. They'd unwash their faces and they'd make a big, almost a, a custom out of announcing their righteousness through their fasting. God has no use for this. He says, listen, clean yourself up. Go out and work. Go do what you're supposed to do. And in the, in the meantime, your heart is setting towards God fasting. Now, I pause here for a moment and I say this. So then, how do we know what the motives of our heart are? Because Jeremiah chapter 79 tells us that what's deceitful above everything else are our hearts. That let's say you say, all right, Brother Brad, I want to search the motives of my heart. So I'm going to spend this week in meditation thinking about it. I'm going to think about it. And I'm going to look and analyze what I would conclude is that you're going to find you're a pretty good person. Because you're slanted that direction. But what you and I must do is come before God as Psalm 139 teaches us to. And I've been singing that song all week that we have that's written after it. Search me, O God, and know me. Try my heart and see if there be any evil way in me and lead me to the way that is everlasting. You know, when you get to a place before God where you say, Lord, you are a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know the motives in my mind and heart that are camouflaged even from me. You know that my judgment is skewed to give myself a better judgment than what I deserve. But Lord, I don't want to emptily perform because here's what Jesus concludes. When we do things with a wrong motive, whatever motive we were after, that's our reward. So if I do something to please you, if I preach a sermon, I'm saying, I hope they just say that's the best sermon they've ever heard. And you get up and you say, Brother Brad, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. That was my reward. That was it. There is no eternal reward that is going to follow that. That was my reward. And you know how long it lasted? That quick. And next Sunday, I'm going to ask you, what did I preach on? And you won't even remember. But that day is the best sermon you ever heard. So my reward was the fluidity of man. The thoughtlessness of, as Jesus compares us, grass that fades and is forgotten. But when you go in secret, God holds the reward. And what's so often the case is that, you know, I think in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to read it real quick, and I'm trying to close here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says this. Therefore judge nothing before the time of judgment until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. God tells us about a day. And I believe the day of judgment is going to be a, and we sing that, that song. Uh, there's a song we sing about being ready for the day of judgment. It's not coming to my mind at the moment. But I remember as a kid that was a very impactful song on me. I imagine what the day of judgment is going to be like. And I imagine what that great white throne judgment is, talks about in Revelation chapter 20 is going to be like. You know, I think one of the things that you could use to describe the day of judgment in the future, it's going to be a day of great surprise. Great surprise. Not just because there are some saying, Lord, 
we did all these things and we weren't saved. Not just because that, that's going to be a great day of surprise. But I even think amongst Christian people, sometimes those that subtly sought man's recognition through their righteous deeds, which, which Matthew 6 tells us, that's what happens. And people, and that person dies, and we cement their, their names and their memories and their deeds upon uh, great memories and, make, uh, and, and continuously reference them as these great pillars of God. I think on the day of judgment, when God says on 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, that he reveals the motives of men's heart, he says, Re- resist judgment at the time. Don't judge it right now is what he's saying. Wait until the hidden things, so things that have been done, never been seen, and the motives for the things that have been seen are revealed. And then let God judge because he'll judge rightly. On the day of judgment, it'll be a great day of surprise because there are some people who, like Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter five, they were meek. They were quiet. They were humble. And they went around And to honor and glorify God, they served people and they loved people. And they didn't get up behind a pulpit and and be seen of everyone. They weren't recorded. Their name was quickly forgotten by men. But God remembers them. The desire of my heart is to be a deep, hidden person and a shallow person visible person in the sense of striving to be seen. Don't get me wrong. God at times gives people platforms because he wants the things that are hidden in the heart to be seen. He wants the gospel to be heard. He wants it to be known. But in the sense of my motives, Lord, search me and try me and strip away from my jaded heart the temptation to be found acceptable to people. Then, it's at that point, when we get to a place where our motive is continuously brought back and purified and cleansed by the Spirit of God, that God enables that person to live righteously and to have an effect upon other people. That's the point. That's the point that I desire our church to get to. Where we don't care, you know, there's a saying that says, when a person doesn't care who gets the credit, a lot can be done, or something like that. There's no limit to what can be done if you don't care who gets the credit. A lot of truth in that, right? If you're just saying, you know what? I want to be in the house of the Lord. I want to be reliable. I want to engage. I want to pray. I want to do whatever the church needs to accomplish its function. And I don't care if I ever get praised publicly by the pastor. I don't care if people ever say whenever I pass away, look at the landmark effect that they had. But the Bible teaches us in Psalms, it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Right? Just to open the door. That's all I do. I pray today God would reveal and then purify the motives of our hearts. I'm afraid today, I'm really genuinely afraid that as young people grow up and all they've ever known is the sense of when you do something well or right, just broadcast it. 
that this will be lost. Let's make sure that the hidden man that God sees is where our concern lies. Come what may, what people think. That's our message today. I pray that God would use it in your heart. He has certainly taken those scriptures and used them in mine this week.